Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angela Fryermuth. And I'm Courtney Emmerich. Today we have three guests helping us celebrate Women's History Month. With us today are Major General Diana Holland, Mississippi Valley Division Commander, Ms. Stacy Brown, Chief Programs Integration Division, and Ms. Tamara Cameron, Chief Operations Division, St. Paul District. Thank you for joining us here today. Thanks, glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We always like to start our episodes off by getting to know our guests. Since we're celebrating women's history, we're interested in hearing a little bit about your current positions and how you're closing gender gaps by holding your current job occupation. And so, Ms. Tamara Cameron, would you like to talk about um, your current position here at the St. Paul District and how you are closing the gender gap as the chief of our operations division? Yes, I'd love to. Thanks, Courtney. Yeah, I'm the chief of the operations division here in St. Paul District. I've been in that position about a year now, and I am actually the first woman in the position in St. Paul District. And I join a lot of very, uh, several very strong women around the country that are in operations division chief roles, and I'm very humbled to join their ranks. And I just love the operations division, and I'm so, so happy to be um, their leader. Thanks, Tamara. So this is Stacy Brown. You know, as, as you mentioned, I'm chief of the programs integration division uh, at headquarters. In that position, I'm responsible for the development, defense, and execution of the Civil Works Program for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I didn't really think about it until just now, but I think that I'm the first woman to hold that position. So I guess that would be how I'm closing the gender gap. Hey, thanks for having Thanks for hosting this forum. I think uh, what a great group of people to be involved in this conversation and in recognition of Women's History Month in March. So uh, thanks to you for devoting the time and energy and, and coordinating this. So I'm Major General Diana Holland. I command the Mississippi Valley Division and I'm dual-hatted. It's a unique position in that I'm dual-hatted as president of the Mississippi River Commission, which is a for those that don't know what that is, it's a slightly different body that uh, two different roles that I play, depending on which hat I'm wearing. But the Mississippi River Commission has the unique opportunity to engage with the administration and Congress on matters of the Mississippi River uh, and its tributaries in a in a direct way and um, in ways that you say can't always do so. So it's great to be a part of both of those. Uh, on the topic of, uh, so I am the first woman to be the MVD commander and the president of the MRC. Uh, I appreciate that opportunity because it gives me not just the chance to influence and make a difference internally to the Corps of Engineers, but as the president of the Mississippi River Commission, an opportunity to engage with people uh, outside of the Corps who may not appreciate how many women are in USAFE making a difference every day. Thank you all for your responses and thanks for your leadership and your commitment to helping USAFE become more diversified. Um, I want to flip back to our childhood, if we could, and um, we all dream when we're children, right? What did you want to be when, when you grew up? 
while you're thinking of that, as you thought of these options for careers or occupations, did any of them seem close to you as a, a young woman? Thanks for that question. So when I was little, I liked to read a lot. And so, um, you know, I would pretty much devour books. And I had um, talked to my mom and, you know, she had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be the person that decides, you know, whether a book gets published. And she explained to me that that's pretty much starting at the top. So that wasn't likely to happen. Uh, she also worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And she knew that I liked math and science, so she suggested that maybe I look at engineering. Um, she was she was actually um, a bit of a, a trendsetter herself. She, she was the first African-American chief of the recruitment and placement um, office in Baltimore district. And um, so she hired a lot of civil engineers and, and engineers. And so she suggested that I followed her suggestion and, um, and, you know, here I am today. Now, you know, I didn't give up completely on my dream. <laughs> so I like to read a lot. And also when I went to college, I, uh, in addition to getting my bachelor of science in civil engineering, I also got a bachelor of arts in English, um, which isn't a typical combination for engineers. So, you know, I used to joke that, you know, um, I could, I could, speak and I could write even though I was an engineer. And I would say that the English major probably helped me a lot because I, in a lot of ways, I'm not sort of your standard engineer. So as I got into some of the higher level math classes, I mean, I really had to, to work very hard. Um, and so it was, it was nice to have those English classes to fall back on and, and to help round me out um, from both a GPA perspective and a, and a perspective as an individual and a person? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I grew up on a horse farm, and so I wanted to be a horse trainer. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, I love doing it. I did it <clears throat> I did it as a job. Uh, when I got old enough, I would ride other people's horses and train other people's horses. I really just got a lot of satisfaction out of that, and my uh, parents gently noted that the majority of successful horse trainers then and today, all these years later, are still men. There were very few successful, so everyone that tries to become a successful horse trainer, there are many, many, many that do not. And they said, why don't you first go in, why don't you go to school, go to college, and get a degree, and then you can do that. I said, okay. And, <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know what I want to be. And they said, well, your dad's an engineer, be an engineer, okay. So I'm good at math and science, and so that is the career path I chose after all these years still being in that career path. And I do still, on the side, ride horses. So I just like, uh, just like Stacy, I managed to keep my hobby. Um, it's not a profession, but it is a very, it's a hobby that I enjoy very much. Ma'am, we're going to go over to you and share your story. When I was six, I told my dad that I wanted to be a Marine. So it started there. And partly, you know, uh, my dad is, uh, that wasn't exactly what he had in mind. He had, even at a very young age, had encouraged me and told me that, you know, whatever you want to do in life, you're going to be able to do it. You just have to work hard and be good to people. And, and you know, you just got to find what your passion is. Uh, and so when I announced at six that I wanted to be a Marine, I'm sure, I don't remember the conversation specifically, but I'm sure there was a pause 
because uh, that wasn't exactly what he had in mind. He had been a Marine, so that's kind of, that's kind of where it came from, and I was very close to my dad. But that desire never went away, and so when he saw that it was not just a passing phase, you know, he did everything he could to, you know, he gave me all the tools that he thought I would need to be successful in the military. I didn't end, ultimately end up being a Marine. My perception uh, as a teenager was that the Army actually had the most opportunities of all the services. The Navy appealed to me. I thought they had neat uniforms and I loved the big ships, but I'm not really fond of big bodies of water. so. Uh, ultimately, I ruled out the Navy, but I really wanted to go to West Point, and, and so anyway, it all kind of aligned towards that end. I, too, was a reader, and my dad, who was, is all science and numbers and, and that kind of guy, uh, had, was strong in math and science. Uh, so West Point, for that reason, was also a good fit, as everybody gets a Bachelor of Science degree. But I did appreciate reading and um, and I really appreciated history, and so my concentration was in history. People think they don't a lot that doesn't align with being an engineer, but actually, I think it's made me a better engineer because you have to write. You know, just the constant requirement of writing becomes more and more important the more senior you get in the military. If you can't communicate well, written and and verbal, then uh, you you very quickly notice that you're um, not as successful as successful as you could be. So it's actually gone pretty well together. Well, thanks for sharing. I know when I was little, I wanted to do something in music. I really enjoyed playing piano and singing, and I still do those things in my in my you know independent time with my family, but uh, wasn't able to make that into a career. But I always knew that I loved working with people. And so um, I've had a multitude of different jobs since college and kind of kind of landed in EEO actually working. Um, my first federal job was actually with the Bureau of Prisons, working in corrections as a, as a female, one of very few females, might I add, in a very male-dominated work environment. But I always knew I wanted to make a difference work with underserved populations, and so that kind of sparked my passion for EEO, and I was the Hispanic program manager there, and I spent then um, almost a decade at Homeland Security, and now here I am at the Corps of Engineers and learning every day about the wonderful work we do in the field, and, um, you know, I am not a science and math-minded person, <laughs> and so I am very Admir I have a lot of admiration <laughs> for folks um, who have that, you know, that skill set that I lack. Um, as we talk about our um, our childhood a little more, Tamara, who were your role models growing up, and what did you admire about them? Yes, my uh, my role models were definitely my parents. Um, my father and mother. My father was a very active and athletic man. He was a ceramics engineer. He was the plant engineer, and he enjoyed riding horses with my mother. And um, my mother did not go to college, and she planned to be a stay-at-home with my mom, with my sister and me. Well, that all changed when my father had a series of strokes, and he ended up with a disability retirement at a very young age. My mother and father switched roles. 
My mom went to work full-time to support our family, and my father became a stay-at-home dad who took care of the farm and uh, with help from my sister and me. With no boys in the family, we learned to do everything with him. He raised us to believe that we could uh, do or be anything we wanted. I really admire how my father overcame the adversity of his disability. Losing his livelihood at such a young age and dealing with harsh judgments by others because he could walk and drive, uh, but he had balance issues walking and his speech remained slightly slurred. And with some paralysis in his face and just enough for people, strangers, to think that he was either drunk or stoned. And this was very hard on him. And yet he was so incredibly kind and thoughtful. And though he suffered from depression, he was always there for me and my sister. And I admire my mother. She went back to work as a secretary at 3M, and she advanced into a position as a lab tech there. And she worked with a bunch of brilliant men, and she did not let it, she did not let it in, intimidate her. She worked right alongside them. I'm really proud of both my mother and father for the turns that they took in their life and the way that they overcame it. And they, they taught me a really good lesson uh, about overcoming adversity. Yeah, you know, similar to Tamara, my parents were my role models. Neither uh, of my parents went to college. They were really successful in terms of, you know, being able to provide a livelihood and me with, with a, a private school education um, and then going to college. You know, my, my father was a very successful car salesman. And he actually only completed the 11th grade. But one of the things he taught me, I mean, he more than made up for his lack of formal education through his work ethic and his determination. And I think that those are qualities that he instilled in me and certainly have shaped the way I look at other folks. You know, a lot of times people like to see, you know, formal education, and I always feel like, you know, I'd rather have somebody with maybe not all the aptitude in the world, but a really great attitude, because if you've got a really good attitude and you're willing to work hard, I mean, you know, what I learned from him is that you can certainly um, succeed. And then, you know, like I said, you know, my mother, you know, she started working for the United States Army in 1944 as a GS2 secretary. You know, she basically worked her way up from to a series of positions as a typist. And again, it was it was really her work ethic, her determination, you know, her thoroughness um, and attention to, to detail that got her promoted to a supervisory position. And then, as I said, I mean, you know, she didn't attend college, but she retired from the Corps of Engineers um, as a chief of recruitment and placement for Baltimore District, which is a GS-12 position. And she was the first African-American employee in the personnel office and the first African-American supervisor. You know, she really taught me, you know, the importance of, you know, perseverance and, you know, really working hard, not giving up, and not letting other people sort of define you and tell you what you can and can't do. Those things have really served me well throughout my career. They were, my parents were my role models, and I feel like I learned a lot from them. So I have, from my childhood, I would identify two two role models from those early years. One I've already mentioned, which is my dad. Uh, very close to my dad, I 
picked up on a lot of his behaviors, a lot of his thinking. Uh, he was, I was an only child, so I got all the attention uh, for good or for bad, I guess. Uh, he was a huge influence in my life, and, and the idea that nothing was going to stand in my way, I lived in the greatest country of the world, and that anything was possible. And, and again, you know, you just have you just have to work hard. He he definitely, you know, when I thought that I had achieved something and maybe I could then stop and move on to something else, he really instilled in me: don't be satisfied with where you're at. Always be looking for that next step. So he would, you know, pat me on the back and then say, "So, you know, what are you going to do to move to the next level or whatever, whatever it was." Uh, and at the time, I would get I would get a little frustrated about that and aggravated with them. But as I look back on it, it was that was a gift to instill that in me, and has has definitely served me well uh, in my career. Like I I did also learn from him providing tools to people to be successful. I mentioned that you know he certainly in, without meaning to inspired me to be in the military, but. When he realized it wasn't a passing phase, he put a pull-up bar in the door of my bedroom and said, okay, well, you want to be in the military, you got to be able to do pull-ups. Women don't normally have a lot of upper body strength, so you better start working on it now. And, you know, I didn't understand what all that, that meant other than, okay, I need to show him that I've worked on my pull-ups this week. And, you know, that that's small thing went a long ways. When I arrived at West Point, the ability to be a woman and be able to do more pull-ups than most of the guys that were able to do on day one bought me some breathing room uh, in that very tough environment. So, and he's always been there for me he, and, he, and he still is today. The other one would be my great-grandmother, who is a an ethnic Greek from uh, what is now Turkey, uh, she immigrated to the United States in the early 20s. Uh, she lived long enough for me to know her until I graduated from West Point. And I was the only great-grandchild for a little while, uh, and we lived in the same town. And I grew up hearing the stories of what that journey was. Uh, at the time, you know, she grew up, her young life was spent in what was then the Ottoman Empire, along the Black Sea, which very quickly the ethnic Greeks became the outsiders and the, and the other side when that portion of the Ottoman Empire uh, became Turkish. And so unbelievable what her family, she and her family went through to get out of there uh, and eventually immigrate to America and land at Ellis Island. She always maintained a very heavy Greek accent. She never learned to drive. Uh, very traditional in many ways, but her proudest moment was becoming an American citizen. And she kept a picture, and it was laminated in her the kitchen drawer. And every time I'd go over there, which was pretty frequently, you know, she would say, Diana, have I told you about the day that I became an American citizen? And then she would, you know, and I would say, yes, and uh, grandma in Greek is Yaya. Yes, Yaya, you showed me that picture. Actually, I never said that because it was clearly such an important part of her life. Definitely impacted me in being grateful for what I have in this country. The fact that I didn't have to endure the challenges that she did just to survive. And talk about a lesson in resilience. 
uh, her story pretty, was pretty incredible. So I would say those were my two earliest role models. Thank you for that. And just like General Holland's, uh, yeah, yeah, um, you know, I think we, we are shaped by our experiences, right? Um, everybody comes from a different background. We experience different things. And uh, so I, I want to ask you, um, what world or national events have significantly influenced your life? And so, I, General Holland, we'll, we'll go back to you for this one. The most obvious one that comes to mind is 9-11. I was teaching at West Point at the time, and as, you know, in the days that followed that attack, they showed us the, the path that those airplanes took to get to New York City, and they, they basically went flew right over West Point to go down to New York City. It was a, you know, certainly a huge moment uh, for all of us in the military because we knew our lives were about to change significantly. And in fact, uh, whether you were a cadet there at the time or on the faculty like I was, the immediate thought that came to mind was, I'm, I'm in the wrong place right now. I need to be out there uh, and getting ready to deploy because we're going to do something big. Something's going to come of this. And uh, wishing that I were not at West Point at the time, a wise colonel uh, who was the head of, our, of the history department said to all of us, he had been a Vietnam veteran, and he said, uh, you know, I, for those of you who wish you weren't on the faculty at West Point right now and out fighting, I promise you, unfortunately, this will be a generational conflict and you'll have more of those ex opportunities to deploy than you can imagine. And of course, he turned out uh, to be 100% right. Tamara, any thoughts on that? Yes, uh, you know, that is something that, of course, a uh, man that jumped out at me was 9-11. And, and I, I thought some more about in the context of our discussion, what event had an impact on me as a child? And I, I remember distinctly Sally Ride becoming the first woman in space, um, the first American woman. Mm -hmm. And I was in high school at the time, and it just really confirmed what my parents had been saying, is that just you can do you can go out. The world is your opportunity. Go out there and um, think maybe a little bigger than what I had been thinking about. You know, think bigger than what you're thinking. And and so that that truly told me that anything is possible. And as Ms. Brown said, with hard work and determination uh, and resilience, you can get there. Well, thank you for your responses. Does anybody have a memory from your first job or uh, something that happened to you early in your career that inspired you to reach for the stars and go for your dreams? I, um, I just have a little something to share about my first job out of college. I was bound and determined to get out of the Minnesota weather. <laughs> More true today than ever. Um, and I was bound and determined to, I was going to go um, go to California and work in California. So I got a job with the Navy Civil Engineering Lab in Port Winnie, California, and I was so excited. And who I got to work with was a lady named uh, Dr. Leslie Carr. She was so smart and talented and doing exactly what she wanted to do. And she was such a great role model for me 
it's another one of my role models of this is the kind of leader I want to be is like Dr. Carr. And I'm, I'm forever grateful to her for giving that such a good example in my first job. So I know the question was your first job. For me, it was really before that. And I guess, you know, when people tell me I can't do something, it usually has the opposite effect on me. I'm usually like, oh, really? You don't think so? Okay, we'll see. So what I would say is, um, you know, like I said, I had always been good at math and science, but I, but in my, I think it was my senior year in high school when I had decided I wanted to be an engineer, I had a professor, he was older at the time. I think it was pre-calculus I was in, and, you know, he, he just had a very different uh, method of, of instruction than I had ever been exposed to. And he says, you know, I was having some trouble. Um, and by trouble, I mean, I, you know, I had always gotten, you know, A's and B's, and I think maybe I had like a C plus or something. So it wasn't like, you know, really bad trouble. That would come later, actually. But, you know, he, he told my mother during a parent-teacher conference, I mean, I guess she must have mentioned that I wanted to be an engineer. And he was like, oh, she'll never be an engineer. You know, she's not, you know, good enough in math. You know, I had actually forgotten about that. My mother reminded me of that. And like I said, I mean, you know, so I don't have my um, engineering license. I didn't sit for the PE. I did the EIT but never did the PE, partly because I really wouldn't want to be an engineer that has to sign design documents or drawings. I was like, if you put me at a drafting table, I think, you know, I'll gouge my eyes out with a sharp object because, I really like to write, and that's why, you know, planning was such a good fit for me because you have to sort of understand, you know, the engineering and be able to translate it and put the report together and sort of tie all the disciplines together, and that's, you know, really what I wanted to do. And, I mean, to some degree, maybe he, there was a kernel of truth in that because my freshman year in college, you know, I loaded myself up to the gills with all the classes I could possibly take. Um, and like I said, I'd always gotten A's and B's, so I thought, oh, yeah, you know, this won't be a big deal. And then at the end of the first semester, I think I had like a 1.4, and I was like, what? <laughs> That's not going to work. And so then, you know, I sort of found my stride, and it was I'm an only child, um, as Joe Holland is, so I'm glad to hear that. It was the first time I was really away from home and away from my parents. Like, I remember them leaving parents' weekend and, you know, me, like, standing there bawling, like, you know, I had just become an orphan or something. And... So by the end of the next semester, I had doubled my cum. It was like a 2.4, but it really proved to me that, I mean, I could do it, but I had to sort of stretch things out. But, you know, it was really, um, I think in the back of my mind, I was always like, okay, so he told me that I can't do this. And so, you know, that just isn't going to work, and that was my motivation. And it wasn't my first job, but certainly something formative. Each of my assignments, really, there's been a number of things. It would be hard to, to, to consider what's the, you know, a, a favorite memory or a best memory. I would say, um, you know, with each assignment, not sure what I was getting myself into, particularly as a junior officer, not, you know, not sure that I was going to be the leader that people needed or the, that I was going to make the right decisions or that I was going to be able to compete like I needed to. And just in each of those assignments, proving to myself that I could do it, 
uh, and gaining that confidence along the way. It started at West Point, even though I had planned and dreamed of going to West Point for many years, there's nothing like suddenly being there and having to actually do it under and, and deal with the rigors and the pressure of being a, a, in a program like that and realizing that uh, I could do it, uh, that it was a team effort and that people you know, my desire to be in the military was partly fueled by wanting to belong to a great team and feeling like I was a part of that great team very early on. And I thought, okay, this dream I had many years ago, looks like it's gonna work out. Looks like uh, I am fit to do this uh, and it's the right direction. Thank you for, for all of that. As we're talking about memories of our careers and inspiring moments, um, I'm sure that we've had obstacles along the way. Are there obstacles that stick out um, that you wish you didn't have to encounter, um, but were put up maybe because of your gender or, or your race or anything like that? Yes, I, I distinctly remember the first time I was con confronted with this idea that I would be judged based on my gender. It was in 1986 when I started college on an engineering track. And honestly, up until that point, I, perhaps I was a bit naive. I truly didn't realize that I would be perceived to be limited because of my gender. I was assigned to an advisor that made it clear that he did not expect me to stay in the engineering track and I was not worth his time. And I struggled that first year, not, not really because of the curriculum, but just the adjustment to college and then having this kind of shaking my confidence that I somehow wasn't good enough, which is a theme that um, stays with, can stay with you for a long time, this feeling of not being good enough. But the second year, I got an advisor that made all the difference. He took me under his wing, he helped me uh, work through my struggles, and I improved significantly. And I ended up receiving a student award in his name a few years later, and it's still today one of the most meaningful recognitions of my career. I pretty much always worked for the Army and for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I mean, when I graduated from high school, even that first summer, you know, my mother had encouraged me to take, like, the civil service entrance exam to be a clerk typist. And, you know, I ended up doing really well on the exam, and uh, as a result, you know, my name came up on a list for permanent job. It was a, it was like assistant to the secretary of the post commander. You know, I said to my mother, this is a permanent job. I'm going to college in the fall. And she's like, it doesn't matter. She's like, you know, just make sure that they know that. And so, I mean, you know, I told them during the interview that, you know, I had plans to go to college and, you know, they hired me. And so as a result, I got permanent status um, very early in my career. I've always worked for the Corps since then. And I would say it's a testament to the Corps of Engineers and the people that are in it. I honestly cannot think of a time where anyone has expressed any kind of issue or concern or um, was anything less than encouraging, um, either because of my gender or my race within the Corps of Engineers, which, you know, I think is, is phenomenal and fantastic. So the only, the only time that I really was overtly confronted um, and with 
with an issue, it wasn't my gender, it was my race. I mean, I went to school in Boston and um, junior year, it was hard to get housing. And so my roommate and I were looking for off-campus housing and, you know, I worked at the library and so I had looked and found a listing for a, a two-bedroom apartment that was really close to the engineering complex. And she was a physics major and I was an engineer. And so it looked like it would be really good. And I, I called the lady and talked to her and, and it was it was probably around, I don't know, eight o'clock at night. and. She said, oh, yeah, she's like, I, I have a one-bedroom, and I have a two-bedroom. And I said, well, we'd only be interested in the two-bedroom because there's two of us. And she said, okay. And I said, you know, I'd like to come down, get my roommate and come down and look at it. She said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, I get off of work at 9. Could we come down? She said, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And she's like, um, you know, I'll be here. And, I mean, it it was less than an hour. So my roommate um, had hurt her knee and was on crutches. So I went and picked her up and, you know, we drove even though it was, you know, not, it was within walking distance. And we got there and the lady uh, opened the door and she said, oh, she's like, I'm sorry, you know, the apartment has been rented. And I said, well, I just called you, I mean, you know, less than an hour ago. She said, oh, I know. She said, but I have the one bedroom. And I said, well, again, that's not going to work. She said, oh, well, I'm sorry. And I said to my roommate, I said, that's just so odd. I mean, I just talked to her and I don't know, something about it just didn't seem right. My roommate was uh, was white. And so I I had her call. She called the next day and sure enough, it was available again. Um, and I reported it to the housing office and they actually sent, you know, if they sent two black people, it wasn't available. If they sent, you know, two white people, it was. I mean, and they ended up taking the listing, you know, out of the housing office because, you know, it clearly wasn't a fair housing issue. And and it worked out fine. I mean, you know, as a result, I ended up living with some people that I'm still really close to. But that was really the only time that I can recall that I just came face-to-face -face with something that was clearly somebody had an issue with me because of my race or gender. You know, by and large, my experience has been similar to what Stacy uh, just described. I feel like I've been included in every, you know, in, in the team's activities and always felt like uh, there was a niche for me and uh, that I, I felt a valuable, as a valuable member of the team. Uh, once in a while, there have been a couple of times where I, I've tried to do things and get assignments that while, you know, nobody said, no, you can't go there because they, you know, either female gender is not allowed in that unit or some other reason. But interestingly, when that's happened, and, you know, it's never been overt, so, you know, it's hard to know what's in people's hearts. And so I try to give folks the benefit of the doubt. And But as I reflect back, you know, at those junctures at Y in the road, it actually turned out that that door being closed you know, I was paid back tenfold by the course that I ended up taking. The the follow-on question to all of this is often, you know, what's your advice to others as they as they face obstacles? And, you know, of course, if it is inappropriate or is wrong the way you're treated or things that are said that, you know, there are things that you must address and you don't just go along with. But when you can't pin it down and, and when, you know, when you like what you do, when you're passionate about what you do, the fact when a door is closed for whatever reason, there is something else out there that often turns out to be even better. So um, I try to look at it that way. Honestly, the most consistent obstacle that I have faced 
has been my height, has been my size. The Army is not, was not designed for somebody that was five foot one. Probably on one hand, I can tell you there's five different cases where there's actually an advantage to being small. One of them I experienced in St. Paul last week, which was crawling into a, the tunnel of a dewatered lock. Turns out that being five foot one is absolutely the right size. So I, I guess I would have made a good tunnel wrap, but, but anyway, that and jumping out of airplanes, it's good to be light when you're jumping out of airplanes. Thank you for sharing your stories. But as we're nearing the end of our conversation, I just wanted to ask a final question here. Uh, what in your life has given you the greatest satisfaction or, or fulfillment? Well, I'll start. Well, I assume you mean not limited to, if it's not limited to professional, absolutely my personal life and the, the wonderful man that I'm married to who uh, we have a, um, he's my best friend. He's my greatest supporter. Uh, when I don't have confidence and I wonder what the heck the Army was thinking when I'm going to go whatever it is I'm about to do, uh, he always has had more faith in me than, than uh, I did. And I so much appreciate that. And his support of me has given me the opportunity to, to have this amazing career and serve the way that I do and have a lot of sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And I, I would say that for me, it's definitely my kids. Being a parent, I found is, is, is very hard, but I mean, it's very rewarding. And I tell everybody that I think I'm a better person because I have children. Many people will question <laughs> this statement. One of the reasons I say that is because, you know, they have taught me to be patient. Now, I'm still not a terribly patient person, so the joke I always make is that, you know, I'm still working on that. It definitely, they have enriched my life in ways that could not have imagined. I really am grateful that I was able to, um, to have children. I guess I, I would have to say the, some of my greatest satisfaction was when I worked overseas. I had the opportunity to work overseas. It was my first, for me, my first major leadership role. And um, I had a group that had a lot of issues and we worked through them. And uh, we ended up in a much better place than when we started. And this was from 1998 to 2000. And I also happened to um, get a master's degree in that time and also have my son. So those were some pretty incredible couple of years for me. A lot uh, accomplished in a small amount of time. And I do have to say, I also have an extremely supportive husband. He has been so supportive. My, our, we've, you know, we married right out of college and um, he's been so supportive my entire career and it's, it's really made all the difference. He's really been a partner. He's been a true partner in raising our son and in, in, in life and work. He probably would love to hear me say this. I probably don't say it often enough. Thank you for all of that. Yeah, I would have to agree um, with Ms. Brown that my my children are my biggest accomplishment and provide the satisfaction in my life. It's, it's a neat experience to have tiny humans that you're helping mold into uh, decent human beings. <laughs> 
So we're, we're nearing the end of our, our conversation. And before we part ways, I really want you guys to provide advice for young women entering the workforce, uh, maybe in your career field or just in general. So Tamara, we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, of course, my first thought is a typical thought, well, who am I to give advice, right? <laughs> oh, there's people who can give much better advice than I. But I can at least speak from my experience and what I think is, is definitely helpful. And the first thing I'd say is there is a world of opportunity out there. And give some thought to what you really want to do. Pursue the responsibility, not necessarily the grade, in a field that you truly enjoy. Have a long-term plan for your career and adjust as you go. It's interesting, uh, the comment about what are you, where do you see yourself in five years. Give some thought to diversifying your experience through developmental assignments. And ask for help from those that have a career that you'd like to have. I have asked for so much help over the years. I've not had any pride. I've been no pride. Just help me. I will take your help. <laughs> Think about the quality of your experience. For example, do you have five years of experience? Or do you have that same one year of experience repeated five times? Think about the experience that you are are gaining in, in your career. And make the time and effort to obtain the necessary advanced education or credentials needed to excel in the position like the whole. It, is, it does take some sacrifice. Be willing to take risks and get out of your comfort zone. If you wait until you think you're ready, you might be waiting a long time. I pushed myself out of my comfort zone and taken risks. And for the most part, they have paid off, and even when they didn't, they were a great learning experience. I can't leave without really just acknowledging some of the people that have had a huge impact on, on my career and express thanks to them. So I just want to um, mention um, early on in my career there were some incredible women, Dr. Leslie Carr, Gail Pringle, uh, Camille DeStaffney. I know they, those people don't necessarily mean anything, but they meant they meant a lot to me, and I have to give homage to them. And more recently, um, uh, the ops chiefs in St. Paul District for their support, Bruce Bolden and Kevin Baumgard, the ones that came from before me and mentored me so well. And General Holland or Ms. Brown? I would say find what you enjoy, find what you're passionate about, uh, and it doesn't necessarily you know, it doesn't mean you have to go to college. It doesn't mean you have to follow a specific path. But whether you figure it out at six years old or you figure it out at 36 years old, you know, just be on the lookout for that thing that inspires you. And that, and if and if it is work in a in a professional career, that when you go to work, it doesn't feel like work. You just enjoy it so much. You do it for free. That it's a, it's just amazing that. You know, you just don't see the obstacles when you enjoy it that much. Anyway, follow your follow your heart. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some nuggets of, of both of those things. I mean, you know, the one thing that I feel like I did not do well in my career was take time to, you know, pursue those credentials, um, as Tamara mentioned, and and. General Holland's advice is, you know, what I frequently tell my kids is if you find something that you like to do, then, you know, you won't mind spending hours and hours doing it. I mean, the other thing that I, that I always tell my kids is I cannot overstate the need to be persistent 
and resilience is hugely important. Um, you know, I have made lots of plans in my life. My life has definitely not gone according to my plan. Back to General Holland's point, I think a lot of times when things have not worked out the way I had planned for them to, frequently when I look back from a vantage point of, you know, once you get past whatever disappointment you have, I generally feel like, wow, that didn't go the way I planned, but it worked out, you know, for the best. So I think just being flexible, being adaptable, being resilient, um, and, you know, always have a plan B. Um, it's good to be persistent and, and try to pursue something, but, you know, there are times when you just can't necessarily get there the way you plan, and sometimes you've got to go, you know, sideways or backwards to go forward. And so just really keeping an eye on where you want to be and, and having that sort of as your North Star, but don't necessarily get fixated on a, on a particular path to get there. Um, allow yourself some flexibility so you can react when things happen and, to, and knock you off the path that you had planned to take to get there, but don't give up on the overall uh, dream or goal. Thank you, Ms. Brown, General Holland, and Tamara for sharing all of your experiences. I've really enjoyed hearing your stories and your insights um, and your personal and work experiences that have brought each of you uh, to the inspiring female leaders that you are here at the core. I can't not mention Meg Gaffney-Smith, our uh, Deputy Chief of Ops and Headquarters. She's been an incredible force and been so supportive. I just really, I just needed to express thanks to her as well. Thank you all uh, for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you, and people you are interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together. Thank you.